Morning, Snowden. Good morning. So this morning we're going to read Exodus 39, verse 42 to 43. 42. The Israelite had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses expected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord has commanded. So Moses blessed them. And we're also going to read Exodus 40, verse 34, 35. Exodus 40, verse 34, 35. The glory of the Lord. Then the cloud covered the tent of the, meet, of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And also John 14, verse 1 to 6. Please. John 14. Verse 1 to 6. Jesus comfort his disciple. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I will not have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Jesus, the way to the Father. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. Lord, we ask that in this moment, in this hour, that you would come and sanctify us, make us holy by your truth. Your word is truth. And Holy Spirit, working with the word, you still have power in 2017 to reorient our lives, to flip our uh, settled thoughts about how the world works upside down and reorient us to the kingdom and to Jesus and to his word. And so we thank you that you are yet at work, uh, that you are still up to transformation in human lives. And we pray that during this time of preaching, you would do no less than transform us, uh, perhaps outright save us, if that be your pleasure, but also, Lord, for those of us who have been walking with you for several years, uh, transform perhaps nooks and crannies of our thinking and our hearts that need transformation. Help us to behold afresh yourself, your goodness, your faithfulness, 
uh, the way that you work in your world. Uh, We pray that you would be glorified during this time in the mighty and the powerful name of our Savior and friend, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning marks the end of our sermon series on Exodus. We have traveled with Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and finally to Mount Sinai. And along the way, we have witnessed God work his mighty wonders and offer his forgiveness and reveal his character. This morning's plan, as we end, is to give just a very brief consideration of the closing chapters of Exodus. So we're looking at Exodus 35 through 40, where Israel finally executes what God had instructed them to do in chapters 25 through 31, which, of course, was to build the tabernacle. Three weeks ago in the preaching time, we were meditating some on the tabernacle. We noted that the book of Exodus begins with the Hebrew people building a project. For their enslaver, they are building a project for Pharaoh and Egypt. At the start of Exodus, the people are building store cities for Pharaoh. But then at the end of Exodus, the people are once again involved in a building project. But this time, it is a happy grace. Uh, It is a willing undertaking. Now they are building the tabernacle, and they are building it not for Pharaoh, but for their new master, Yahweh their God, who freed them from the land of Egypt. As Exodus closes, God is allowing the people now to proceed with the tabernacle construction after God had exercised what we saw as undeserved patience, God had exercised amazing grace toward Israel following their descent into sin with the golden calf. Chapters 35 through 40 are the construction chapters. Israel now puts together the tabernacle. The tabernacle, as we also said three weeks ago, was purposed by God to be a holy, a holy place, a holy residence, a dwelling complex for God that was to be treated with due reverence. In fact, most of the tabernacle was simply off limits to you unless you were a priest. The tabernacle was a holy dwelling for God. But then at the same time, we said that God also purposed the tabernacle as the place where, in fact, he would dwell with his people as they journeyed toward Canaan. God would really be there in the desert with his people in the center of their camp. So that the tabernacle is both a place marked by the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, the holiness of God. It is a holy place, but also it is a place marked by the imminence of God. In other words, he was really there in that tent with his sojourning people. And this tension is part and parcel with the tabernacle. Again, a place that emphasized to Israel both the holy otherness of God, but yet also 
the real presence of God. All I want to do this morning is to take us to two passages in these latter six chapters of Exodus, two passages that fall immediately after the tabernacle has been completed. And admittedly, part of my aim today, just so you're aware of this, part of my aim in this last sermon on the book of Exodus is simply to have us go neck deep in the glorious thickness of the biblical text for worship purposes. I hope that this exercise today will inspire us further toward being better readers of our Bibles and also would just sort of help us to well up in worship toward God who has revealed himself so powerfully to us in the pages of Scripture. Let's go first of all to Exodus 39, verses 42 and 43. These verses were read to us earlier. Exodus 39, verses 42 and 43. Now, three weeks ago, we discussed some of the parallels between the tabernacle and the Genesis 1 and 2 creation story. How the tabernacle appears to be described in Scripture as a new Eden, where God would once again come in order to walk with his people as he had with Adam and Eve in the garden before their fall into sin. Well, in this section of Exodus 39, watch again, as we travel through this together, watch again just how many allusions there are back to the Genesis creation narrative. Again, these verses of Exodus 39 report the completion of the tabernacle, and they read as follows. According to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses... So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As Yahweh had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. So the tabernacle is done, and it looks fantastic. Well, in Genesis 1.31, at the creation of the world... God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Here at Exodus thirty-nine forty-three, Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. It seems that Exodus thirty-nine forty-three is purposely picking up the language of seeing and beholding. That's found in Genesis one thirty-one again hinting to us as readers very strongly that the tabernacle is to be understood as a new creation, a new dwelling place of God with people, a new Eden. Further, just as God in Genesis 1.22 and in 1.28 had blessed his creatures at the creation of the world, so Moses blessed, notice, the people in 39.43, as they complete the tabernacle. The tabernacle is put forth in the pages of Scripture as a new creation, a new Eden. Having forfeited the presence, the manifest presence of God in Genesis 3, human beings were now being graced by God with the tabernacle. His presence was coming back with the people on earth He would dwell with people again in this tent. 
Well, let's go to our second text this morning, which is Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. Now, this text reports what is really the climactic moment of the entire tabernacle narrative. God had expressed his desire to dwell with the people in this tabernacle back in Exodus 25.8. And finally, the grand moment came. The tabernacle is completed, and watch what happens here in Exodus 40. The text reads, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now what's happening here, friends, is a completely undeserved, radical grace. Having only recently been betrayed by these very people, God now draws near to them intimately in grace to dwell with them in the tabernacle that they had made according to his instructions. Think of it. God had made his marriage covenant with these people at Mount Sinai, but the people had been adulterous and had broken that covenant with the golden calf. But from God's perspective, the covenant was not annulled. He now moves in with his bride. Now Yahweh and his people will start to live together after the rather rocky start to their marriage. Oh, the amazing grace. I hope we see it here. The amazing grace and the amazing forbearance and patience of our God. Now, what I want us to see here is that Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, are verses that simmer and bubble over with significance. What I want to show here for the remainder of our time is that these verses connect, they connect in a very organic sort of a way in four different directions. We've got this, this slide up there so you can see the four directions. First, these verses connect naturally to the book that came before Exodus, which is Genesis. Secondly, these verses have profound connections within the, the book of Exodus itself. Third, these verses connect forward in the narrative to the book of Leviticus, which comes right after Exodus. And fourth, of course, these verses connect forward even further to the New Testament and to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's take it one point at a time. First, these verses connect backward to Genesis. Now, all I want to say here is that ever since Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 1 and 2, prior to their fall into sin in Genesis 3, ever since that time, God had been moving history toward this climactic moment in the book of Exodus, where God's presence now settles again, 
on this new creation called the tabernacle. Exodus 40, 34, and 35 are verses that trumpet to us a new creational moment, a recovery at last of God's presence, which had been forfeited in Genesis 3. That's the connection back to Exodus. But then what about our second point? Our second point, again, is that these verses of Exodus 40 connect profoundly with the wider text of Exodus itself. Watch this. There are numerous places throughout the book of Exodus where a cloud signifies the protecting, guiding presence of Almighty God. Examples are there on the screen. And for the sake of the recording, I'll read them out. Exodus 13, 21 and 22. Exodus 14, 19 and 20 and verse 24. 16, 10, 19, 9 and 16. 24, 15 through 18. 33, 9 and 10 and 34, 5. So that when we read in Exodus 40, 34 and 35 about this presence of a cloud here as God moves into the tabernacle, we should already be thinking, if we've read the rest of Exodus, we should be thinking protecting presence, guiding presence. This is our God. God's presence in the tabernacle means for Israel protection and guidance. And it means the same for us. Amen? Protection and guidance. But now let's deepen even further here. We've said already that the tabernacle was a new Eden. That the tabernacle was a new creation. I want to show you also that God purposed the tabernacle to be a new Mount Sinai. Where am I getting this? Well, go back to Exodus 24, verse 16. We don't have it on screen there, but... If you have your Bible open, go to Exodus 24:16. This verse gives us a description of when God came to dwell on Mount Sinai. And the description of that occurrence when he came to dwell on Mount Sinai is remarkably similar to God's coming to dwell in the tabernacle in our Exodus 40 verses. Exodus 24:16 has God coming to Sinai and the first sentence of that verse notice says this The glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it 6 days Oh, it's certainly not a happenstance thing that those four words that I just emphasized, glory, dwelt, cloud, and covered, each of them appear again in our Exodus 40 passage. The same Hebrew words occur in the original text when the cloud covers the tabernacle and is connected also to God's glory that dwells or settles on the tabernacle. So clearly in reading Exodus 40, we are being invited to think of Exodus 24. The tabernacle is a new Sinai. And just as Mount Sinai had three zones or three levels about it, so the base of the mountain where Israel camped 
and then the midsection of the mountain where only elders and priests went, and then finally the mountain top where God dwelt and where only Moses could go. So the tabernacle was divided into three areas. The outer court, accessed only by certain Israelites. The holy place, accessed only by priests. And then finally, the most holy place, accessed only by the high priest once a year. The tabernacle with its three zones was like a new Mount Sinai, but the difference was, the difference was, the tabernacle was portable, wasn't it? It was movable, unlike Mount Sinai. So now, instead of God declaring law from Sinai and sending messages through Moses to the people from the mountain, the people would have the tabernacle, which would act as God's portable, mobile communication vehicle. The tabernacle, to quote Nahum Sarna, is a portable Sinai. A portable Sinai. So in all of these ways... Our verses in Exodus 40 in the tabernacle, we need to see, connect profoundly with the wider narrative of the book of Exodus itself. And we need to learn to read our Bibles in this way as we're reading a given passage. How does it connect with what came before, with what's immediately around it, and with what comes after? This is the way God has put his scriptures together. But let's go on to our third point, which is that these verses of Exodus 40 also connect outward and forward to the book that comes directly after Exodus 40, and that's Leviticus. Notice very carefully how Exodus ends. Exodus ends with Moses unable to enter the tabernacle. Isn't this fascinating? Exodus closes off with Moses unable to enter the tabernacle. The text says Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So Exodus ends a few steps short of a Hollywood ending. Moses unable to enter the splendorific tabernacle that Israel has just spent about six chapters building. Wow. It's almost like if you had the world's two strongest magnets and you faced the north poles of those two magnets toward one another so that you get that strong magnetic resistance, you can't bring the two magnets toward one another. That's what's going on here. As Exodus ends, Moses is being repelled at the entrance of the tabernacle by the nuclear magnet that is called God. Why? What is going on here? Is the situation perhaps as straightforward as Douglas Stewart suggests in his Exodus commentary? Stewart suggests that if you have a house builder who, after he's finished building a house for someone else, retains a key for the house so that he can come in whenever he wants, obviously that would be very inappropriate. Moses was the house builder, but God was the occupant of the finished house. 
The house builder, Moses, was no longer welcome in the house whenever he felt like coming in. The occupant of the house now reserved rights of privacy. And this denying Moses' entrance is simply God asserting his rights as owner of the newly built home. Well, that's Douglas Stewart's suggestion, which isn't bad. But I prefer the conclusion of a scholar named L. Michael Morales in his book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? I think Morales gives better consideration to the flow of the biblical canon from Exodus into Leviticus, which is the continuation of the story. Morales says that what we have as Exodus closes is Moses unable to enter, and now I'm quoting him, unable to enter through Eden's gates into the glory of the divine presence, which is exactly where Leviticus begins. Moses, of all people, not able to enter the tabernacle. And Morales says this, if Moses the mediator may not enter, then how will it be possible for the tabernacle to become attentive meeting between God and all Israel? In other words, if Moses can't enter, then there will be no hope for the rest of Israel to approach God through this provision of the tabernacle. The solution to this problem? Leviticus 1 through 9, which gives us what? These chapters continue the story and they give us God's laws concerning, listen, concerning sacrifice and priesthood. In other words, the end of Exodus 40 leading then into the initial chapters of Exodus is teaching us that to enter God's presence, listen, to approach God is going to mean that sacrifice will be necessary. Amen? Amen. Sacrifice that must be undertaken by an ordained priesthood. Moses is repelled at the entrance of the tabernacle at the end of Exodus because you can't just come on in to God's presence without proper, God-ordained sacrifice taking place at the hands of a God-ordained priesthood. That's how Exodus 40 connects forward to Leviticus. Which leads us, finally this morning, to our fourth point. Which is that our Exodus 40 verses connect beyond Leviticus, even into the New Testament, and to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, just to review Very quickly, our Exodus 40 verses, verses 34 and 35, are about God coming powerfully to dwell in the tabernacle, but Moses being unable to enter the tent. Moses and Israel needed sacrifices and an operating priesthood if they would draw near to God in the tabernacle. Well, turn with me in our closing moments to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The context of John 14, according to the beginning of John 13, the context is the Passover feast. 
So already we know that we are in Exodus territory as we listen to Jesus speak in John 14. Now the first several verses of John 14 are beloved verses to many of us. They comfort us greatly in times of trouble. But what I want to want you to listen for here as you hear these verses again is the tabernacle language that Jesus is using. And also listen for the way he addresses the question of how it can be that you and I can access the presence of the Father. Verse 1, Jesus says, and again, he's speaking to you through his word right now. Wherever you're at, he says to you, let not your hearts be troubled. Blessed be Jesus. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now notice that Jesus here talks about a house that belongs to his Father. Sounds like the tabernacle, doesn't it? A house for God. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus reminded his disciples here in John 14 that he would be going away from them to the Father's house to prepare a place for his disciples. Jesus had descended, hadn't he? He had descended from his position in eternity as the second person of the Trinity. He had descended to take on human flesh on earth. Now he was telling his disciples that he would ascend again to the house of God to make a place for his disciples. And what was the route? What was the path? that Jesus would take from the time of this conversation in John 14 to his ascension to the Father's house. He would take the root of the cross and the resurrection. His ascension back to God's house would involve a necessary journey through crucifixion and resurrection. Only by the cross and resurrection could Jesus go and open the door again, as it were, to the Father's house. Moses was not able to enter God's house without sacrifice and an appropriate operating priesthood. Jesus would enter God's house by the sacrifice of himself. His own blood would give entry into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of the Father in the true tabernacle. Hebrews 9 verses 11 and 12 say that as high priest, as high priest of the good things that have come, he, Jesus, entered once for all, he entered once for all into the holy places Amen. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like it was in the Old Testament, but by means of his own blood, thus securing 
an eternal redemption. The way into God's house was by the blood sacrifice of God himself. And by the operative priesthood of God himself. Well, in John 14.3, Jesus continued, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. How many promises of God are true? All of them. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. (laughs) Notice this. As we've said already, Jesus would ascend following the cross and the resurrection in order to prepare a place in the Father's house for his disciples. Now Jesus talks about another descent. That hasn't happened yet. This future descent is his second coming. When he will, because all God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, he will come again to take believers to himself that where he is, we who believe may be also bodily. Amen? Verse 4. And you know, what? The way to where I am going. Uh, And and I empathize with Thomas. (laughs) Thomas said to him, scratching his head, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Verse 6. Jesus said to him, blessed words, I am, who is? Jesus is, the person of Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many people come to the Father except through Jesus? No one, says Jesus. He looks at all of humanity and he levels all of us doesn't matter what religion you adhere to. No one comes to the Father except through me. Moses couldn't access the presence of God in the tabernacle without sacrifices and a priesthood. You and I cannot access the presence of the Father without Jesus without being covered in the sacrificial blood of Jesus, without the effective high priesthood of Jesus Christ that grants access to the Father. We cannot access God without trusting and believing and receiving God's Son, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins on the cross as our substitute. Jesus is the only, listen to me carefully, the only solitary way to access God. He is the only means that human beings worldwide have been given to access the Father. Jesus is the divine condition laid down by God by which human beings can access 
God. So I want you to ask yourself very seriously and ask yourself with as much sobriety as you can possibly muster today. Ask yourself, am I alive in Jesus Christ? Have I trusted in the crucified Son of God and looked on Him as Lord and Savior? Exodus teaches us that God is in the business of lifting slaves out of their Egypts. Through the wilderness, through their lapses into sin, to His own self. But He only does that through His Son, who as 1 Peter 3.18 says, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, like me and like you, that He might bring us to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is such a countercultural word. We want to be tolerant of everybody and all religious claims, but Jesus, you have come along and said, No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you embolden us, Holy Spirit, to be proprietors and keepers of this word in a Christ-like pastoral way to warn people that they must be in Jesus Christ in order to spend eternity with God. Would you embolden us even this week, dear God? We thank you that the way has been cleared, access to the Father has been granted because of the sacrificial blood of our high priest, Jesus Christ. And we pray that this week we would go into our days with that hope, with that assurance, that because of Jesus and his blood covering us, we will be with you bodily in eternity. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear this benediction from the Lord to you. To you whose life is hid with Christ on high, whoever lives and pleads for you, May he keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Amen.